Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Business of Marketing, brought to you by Adweek and SAP. The Business of Marketing is where you get to hear from business leaders and innovators on how CMOs work collaboratively with their C-suite partners to drive business transformation. So, for anyone who is a CMO or aspiring to join the C-suite, this podcast will provide you with a deep dive into how to create cross-functional teams, establish clear internal communications, invest in customer centricity, drive technology innovation, and develop talent for the future. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show and have a wonderful day. On today's episode, I am joined by Gus Wenner, the President and Chief Operating Officer of Rolling Stone. I'm excited to share this conversation with you as Rolling Stone is such an iconic brand and has been the leading voice of music and popular culture for more than 50 years. Gus runs the day-to-day operations of the company and drives business strategy. Under his leadership, they have gone through an extraordinary period of transformation, enabled in large part by his vision for how to interweave the brand, world-class journalism and storytelling into the fabric of culture and society. During our conversation, we talk about his early career, experience learning the business of publishing from his dad and founder of Rolling Stone, Jan Wenner, the sale of the company to Pink's Media, and how they have since driven business growth through digital transformation, including the launch of a chart and a daily streaming show that Rolling Stone hosts in partnership with Twitch. This was a great chat. I hope you enjoy. Have a great day, and thanks for listening. Gus, thanks for joining, man. Great to meet you. Great to meet you, too. Thank you for having me. Okay, so as you know, this podcast is about business transformation, and we like to use our platform to tell stories about businesses and the leaders behind them who have driven transformation through marketing. And yours 
is a story that I am super excited to share with our audience today. So before we get into specifics and before we talk about the kind of Rolling Stone turnaround story, let, let us focus a little bit on you. And I'd like to actually go back to your days at Brown, where you graduated from. And I'm curious, first of all, you know, why did you decide to go to Brown in the first place? But also, how was your experience there? And to what extent did it prepare you for a career in publishing? I loved Brown. It was an amazing place. When I went to <clears throat> visit, I had one of my good friends at the time was at RISD. Um, so I ended up being with, with her for most of my visit and getting a whole dose of RISD as well as the Brown campus. And just coming from growing up in New York City, it, it felt like such an interesting change of pace, but still a city that was all kind of like strewn together and different cultures and vibe and energy. Having the, the sort of RISD Brown was super cool. It was an amazing place. And I think the the biggest thing that I took away from my experience there was just the friendships that I made and the people that I was around. And so many of my best friends now are people that I went to Brown with, and they're all doing fascinating things in all sorts of fields and lots of creative thinkers and writers and musicians and people that were there when I was there that I'm, I'm very close with. But I majored in what they call literary arts, which is essentially just creative writing and wrote a book while I was at Brown that never got published, but I, I was working with a book agent and editor and was like deeply into that. And then when I graduated, I started working at Rolling Stone and just kind of fell in love with that. But that process of, of writing a book was very informative for a career in publishing because it just kind of taught me a how to write and edit and think about communicating and telling a story, which for me, most of the writing I do now is emails, but it, it helps, it informs it. And even just like in meeting with people and like that experience was so formative and it allowed me to kind of like internalize like all the life experiences I'd had up to that point. It also taught me about work ethic. It was easily the hardest I had ever worked. And it's not the kind of work where you can rely on anyone but yourself. Nothing else needs to be in place for you to write. You just need a pencil or a computer. Did you find that your decision to join WENA was like preordained in some way? I mean, was it just like a very natural, straightforward decision for you to make to not only go into your father's business, to go into publishing immediately after graduating, but also going into a business that just was so iconic at the time. Not at all. When I joined, I had like other aspirations. I was working this thing. I was doing music. My dad also sat me down and was like, this is not going to lead to anything just so you know. And I was like, yeah, I just want to learn something and, and be here for like a year and, and just <clears throat> have some exposure to this company and learn a little bit of how it works, but had no intentions of of continuing on. And, and he basically told me that that wasn't an option. And even if it was an option, his words were, I wouldn't burden you with this responsibility because it's, it's very difficult work, especially at that time, the publishing industry was changing. But the bigger point he was making was he didn't want me to think that this was something that was available to me or um, whatnot. And he's a shrewd guy and I totally understood. Uh, you came out of the gate pretty fast though, right? I mean, you graduated in 2012, you joined Wena, 
you had this opportunity early on to work across a portfolio of different media brands, right? Including obviously Rolling Stone, but also under the Wenner Media umbrella, you also have US Weekly and Men's Journal. Describe describe your first experience as you've been exposed to this like new industry and these different publishing brands. Describe what those businesses and those brands looked like back then. So that was in 2012. And I think we've seen the, the print business, the magazine business just become essentially a, a shell of itself. At that point, it wasn't quite there. So the company was still extraordinarily profitable. And the vast majority of its revenue was coming from magazines. In addition to that, my dad, the thing that he is brilliant at and was in love with and knows as well as anyone in the world is how to produce an incredible magazine. And obviously his legacy speaks for itself and starting Rolling Stone, but also Us Weekly, as you mentioned, became one of the most profitable magazines ever in its in its heyday and and he really took that from actually nothing it was a something called us wasn't even us weekly it wasn't a week, weeklies weren't really um big at the point when he he bought it for nothing from i think the new york times and then but he built that up into an enormous business it's a, it's a huge success story in publishing and so the the vast majority of of the revenues were coming from print and when i came in it was clear to me as just a young person that the future was in digital and that we eventually at some point, I was so young, it was, it feels almost like spoiled to like talk in these terms, but it, it was pretty clear to me just intuitively, like we would need to, to, to really make a push online and, and couldn't just rely on print. So I came in working for, and actually before I started working, there were a couple of people I met with or that my dad kind of put me with just to sort of, touch base and, and, and learn something and have conversations. One of them was Tom Freston. One of them actually was Shane Smith. So, the, and Tom Freston was a big investor in Vice. And at that time, Vice was like exploding. So I was kind of like looking around and like, okay, we, we need to get our act together. But that was at a time where I didn't know much about much. So I, I really did just go to learn, but intuitively understood that like, we were going to need to make real moves as a digital business. So I came in working for the chief digital officer at the time, who is a brilliant guy called David Kang. And he had had a sort of long career in publishing. He, before that, was a professor at Harvard Business School. And he's extraordinarily smart. And my first year was really colored by just spending so much time under his wing and learning so much from him about business, really, and about digital businesses. And he had so many ideas of, of what the, that company should be doing, what Winter Media should be doing, but they were kind of falling on deaf ears because they were such a print centric culture at the top. And I was very quickly able to navigate through that and just talk to my dad at the end of the day, when we drive home together and, and be like, this, this really seems smart. Like David's and, and, it made sense to him coming from me and, and I just had that direct access. So in year one, and I'll give the credit to, to David, the, the chief digital officer at the time, like we made so much progress growing as in terms of our digital revenue and our digital audience, just because there were pretty clear, obvious stuff that we weren't doing that we needed to be doing. So 
that first stretch was really about learning and then doing things that we needed to do to kind of get in the game and establish a real digital business and scale and commitment there and like build out the right team. And then from there, I started to, to really pursue ideas that I was having. So walk us through that period from, I guess, like 2017 onwards, you sold off US Weekly, you began a process of seeking new investment, presumably just to shore up the, the Rolling Stone business. What was the vision back then? You'd gone through this period of initial digital transformation, you start to build out the digital business, start to generate digital revenue. What was the vision back then? And, and to what extent, when you look back and think about that time, to what extent have you realized that vision? Well, there was a moment around 2017 where it was clear that we weren't really going to be able to thrive as a mid-sized independent publishing company with the way that the, the print market had gone and that we needed investment. And in addition, we had uh, a bunch of debt on the company. We had all sorts of liabilities. We were in a situation where it really was clear that we needed to sell certain assets to like pay down some of those responsibilities, those liabilities, the debt. And ultimately the thing that was most important to me was the future of Rolling Stone, which obviously was what resonates, the thing that I fell in love with and, and care about the most and feel like, you know, has repeatedly and can continue to make a difference in the world. Um, so yes, yeah, started, started the process and I was kind of, put in charge of it for better. I mean, it ended up going great on the whole, but I was young at the time. I was like 26, essentially, and sold Us Weekly, which was a huge deal. We sold it to American media, but that process involved all sorts of different buyers. And, and, and it was a really wild negotiation. It was about like going to business school in, in six months or less, just going through that whole negotiation and process. Then we sold Men's Journal. We had taken on some minority investment in Rolling Stone, but basically by the time we got to 2017, it was all about <clears throat> selling Rolling Stone to a buyer who we felt, A, satisfied like the various financial needs that were important to us at the time, but really put Rolling Stone in position to grow into the most important publishing company of our kind in the world, which is, was the goal and is the goal. And we made a big announcement in the New York Times and there were all sorts of interested parties and it was a very complicated process because we had some minority investors, but emerged with Jay and PMC and it just couldn't have been a better match in terms of the size of business that we were and our ambitions and the type of company that PMC is. I mean, we had interest from events, companies, music-driven companies, like rich billionaires who wanted to have Rolling Stone. You know, I mean, there was all sorts of different flavors, different kinds of media companies, but PMC truly, in my opinion, is, is kind of the smartest run publishing company there is now. And that was clear to me then. And <clears throat> so it, it, it was a great match. And Jay is a brilliant businessman and was clear to me also then <clears throat> that he was going to be a great mentor for me and my own growth and to realize all the things I wanted to do. And my dad at that time had had a heart attack. So he was kind of out of the mix and in the hospital. So it was like a, it was a very intense moment, but it really couldn't have turned out better. 
So once the BMC deal was done, the next task at hand is to really start to put the resource and strategic thinking behind taking the Rolling Stone from an iconic but still print-first media business towards becoming a more modern digital-first publication. And what's interesting to me on this journey is the brand itself is so iconic. It stands for something. It means so much to your audience that sometimes that can get in the way of or potentially represent uh, a distraction from what's ultimately more important in the first instance, at least, which is what is our strategy? How do we build audience? How do we reach younger consumers? What are the digital products that we need to be building that are going to enable us to create a sustainable business in what is a complicated, highly competitive industry? So can you talk about some of those specific changes, some of the changes you made early on after PMC deal, and in particular, talk about the ways in which you went out to specifically target and reach a much younger audience of millennial consumers? In those early days, when I started the website, I had like seven or eight million unique visitors a month. Today, we're hovering somewhere in between 30 and 40 million a month. So it's grown exponentially. And when doing that <clears throat> deal, the primary goal initially was to go from being an unprofitable business to a profitable business, because ultimately that gives us freedom. To, to really expand and invest. And we knew that the strategy of cutting, which so much of the publishing industry was doing, was just a failing strategy. So we very quickly added more tomatoes in the soup, so to speak, and spent like real money turning the magazine from a product that comes out twice a month to a product that comes out once a month and changing it to a really high quality kind of oversized book product and hired, I think we grew our editorial staff by like 35% in that first year, just bringing in all sorts of talent, writers, editors, photographers, videographers. And we relaunched the brand, like we redesigned the magazine, the website, did some changes to the logo, kind of modernized it a bit. Our first cover that we launched with was, I don't know if you remember, it was Cardi B and she was pregnant and, mm -hmm. and Offset was like kissing her stomach which was an amazing image. And there were, it was such a multimedia package. There was so much video, there was so much social content. It really signaled, I think, the direction that we were going, both in terms of what our coverage would be, moving you know, heavily into the type of music and cultural issues that matter to young people today, and what our product mix was gonna be. And since then, we've done so much and we've expanded our licensing business globally. We've made podcasts and documentaries and that's become a huge focus of every story we tell and just our creative process but most importantly we've turned into a profitable and growing business and every quarter we make progress where we're in a position now where we're looking at acquisitions and ways to kind of transform who we are through bringing under co other companies under our umbrella that can expand our reach our impact our um, abilities in the event space, our abilities in the storytelling space, the production space. So it's been a, a fantastic journey and sort of shifting from navigating out of crisis into like building and 
growing a vision into reality and like dreaming up big ideas and, and focusing on how we can make an impact on the world. It's a whole different ballgame. I want to unpack a little bit of that in a moment. I want to sort of talk about some of these new products and new areas in which Rolling Stone is investing in creating content around, et cetera. But I just want to spend a couple of minutes just talking about a conversation that I had. It must be five years or so ago now with Mark Thompson, who was then the former CEO. Well, he was then the CEO of the New York Times. I had the opportunity to interview him during one of our conferences. And at the time, they just launched their paywall subscription business, and they were experiencing massive growth digitally uh, and their fortunes as a business were really starting to turn around in a pretty significant way. However, this was also after a period of more than a decade, at least, of the New York Times struggling to make their digital business work. And, and in large part, because much like a lot of the traditional media companies at that time, they had mistakenly believed that they could offer a premium editorial product, premium editorial content for free, and then monetize that through display. And there was something that he said to me when I asked him what he believes was the most important factor in turning around the digital business. And he said it was to do with bringing the editorial and commercial parts of the business together around a single idea. And that idea was to create content that readers would be willing to pay for. Mm -hmm. What do you believe is the single most important factor that's driven growth for the Rolling Stone since you've taken over the business? Well, I think that he's spot on. And if you look at the business model for publishing over the course of time, it's always been both ad supported and reader supported. And the digital ad business is much more difficult business for a publisher than the print ad business was for a variety of reasons. For one, the CPMs are much lower. You have so many more competitors. So you're splitting the pie up. You're competing against Facebook and Google. It's a lot more expensive and involved of a sell versus just selling a page in a magazine or space in a newspaper. So it requires a couple things. And I think what he said is, is the most important thing, which is the strength of content. I remember having talked to a guy called Ravi Samoya, who was covering media for the New York Times and did a couple stories on us when he was still there. And when he was leaving his post in that, in that media column role, I was like, Robbie, what did you learn? Like all told three years of covering the media business, talking to all these people starting or leading media companies. And he was like, well, the thing that's most clear to me is if your brand means something to the world, it's probably going to survive. And if it doesn't mean much, it probably won't. It was a simple insight, but it was probably pretty spot on. And we have the framework to matter as much to people, as you point out, as almost any other magazine ever has. I mean, Vogue, The New Yorker, maybe there's a few, but like Rolling Stone is as iconic as it gets, but it doesn't take the onus off of us from great journalism because that will be the thing that defines us and allows us to grow. So our North Star is great journalism and it's literally the most important part of our strategy. And it sets the tone for every piece of commercial activity that we do. And when we work with our partners, whether they're platforms or advertisers or whatever, it's all on the back of great storytelling, which in turn creates a really strong, engaged audience at scale. So I do agree with him that you need 
to have a, a revenue stream that relies on getting money from readers as well as advertisers. In our case, I think we need to be even more diversified than that. So licensing and events and e-commerce have become really important pieces of our business and our pie, but it all stems from creating great journalism. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I, I can imagine that one of the biggest challenges you have in this regard, particularly given that we're talking about Rolling Stone, is how do you raise the bar? How do you think about, it's, it's, it's all very well to say great journalism, right? But how do you talk about great journalism also in the context of how you raise the bar? How do you take it to that next level, especially given where we are today? We are living in the most fragmented media landscape. Consumer attention has never been more in demand and consumers have never had access to more content and more storytelling like literally ever before in history so you obviously have to not just find new audience but you also have to think about how do we make our storytelling better talk us through what that looks like even strategically as you point out there's such a history there and such a bar that's been set and getting to that place and surpassing that place is the goal. And that's what I'm thinking about every day. And, and we're working on it. I don't think we're fully there yet. I think we've got a ways to go, which is exciting. But I think to really surpass it, like we have to do great journalism across platforms. Whereas in the past, it was just about putting out a really, you know, great magazine. Today, when we have a big editorial idea, we're thinking about it as audio, as video, as a docu-series or even a film, in addition to whether it ends up in the magazine or on the website, how it appears on social media. So I think it's about great editorial ideas and a top-notch staff to, to generate those ideas and assign those stories and pursue them and, and do the legwork that, it, that has always existed around reporting and breaking news and, and getting sources, developing sources and leveraging access that other publications couldn't which has always been like a staple of our value proposition. Um, but the onus is on us strategically to think about how we treat that and how we can turn it from just a, a written piece to like a real multimedia asset. So our head is very much around in, in the headspace of 
how do we do great journalism, but across different mediums? And that was never the challenge. And in a fragmented space, like you said today, it's even more important that you're putting that and, and creating it at, at a quality level where and how people are engaged. And it's just a totally different ballgame. So that's kind of our primary focus now. Let's go back to a few examples that you shared earlier in terms of where you are diversifying into. You obviously mentioned documentary films, you mentioned licensing. Talk about some of the other areas where you are looking at ways to diversify revenue. We just launched a big partnership with Twitch, for example, and we have a daily show, almost like a little mini television network running on Twitch. And we've folded that into just our general kind of editorial operations. So that's a very exciting project. Uh, How's that doing just from sort of a audience engagement standpoint? Really well. I mean, I think we're on our fourth week now and each week I think we've surpassed a million views and growing and engagement has been really good. And we've assembled a really talented group there. We, as I mentioned, events have become a big focus for us. And I think we grew our events business like 160% from 2018 to 2019. And then 2020, we were going to grow even more. And then obviously there was a global pandemic. So that, that halted those plans a little bit, but it did open the door though, for us to prepare our event strategy even more. So I think coming off the pandemic, you'll see us make an even deeper dive into that space. Cause I really do believe that the future of media in, in some, not completely, but in many ways is in events and experiential and the future of experiential is in media and storytelling. So I think that combination is going to be critical for us over the next couple of years. So we're hyper-focused on that space. We've done a couple licensing deals that we're working on and launching that are exciting. We're doing a whole project with Cureleaf around Rolling Stone Cannabis. We're relaunching our store and making quality clothes and using our brand and our imagery in, in interesting ways there. E-commerce and affiliate revenue, which the New York Times has done an amazing job with, is a big piece of the strategy. They have the wire cutter. Over the course of the pandemic, we've developed that into a significant part of our bottom line. There's a bunch of ways, definitely documentaries and podcasts and films. That's a huge focus of ours. Let's talk about innovation and in particular, what you're excited about in terms of what's on the roadmap or, or how you think about the future and also driving innovation today that could perhaps impact the growth of the business in you know two to three years time and you touched on a couple of things I mean I think certainly the show you have on Twitch is a really good example of where a media company is looking to meet new audiences where they already are which is of course just hugely important and Twitch is great because I think that they figured out the ways to monetize those audiences in really interesting and compelling ways. But what are you looking at? What are you excited about? What are you working on from a sort of an innovation standpoint? And in particular, I think I'm interested in like, what are some of these new mediums that you're potentially going to explore and move into? Yeah. I was thinking about that this morning as I was sort of thinking about return to work and 
what the right plan for our employees, our staff is. It, I think that innovation in a way has like taken a little bit of a hit over the pandemic for a lot of businesses, especially in the media space, because, well, that's actually maybe wildly false because the sort of whole world audience being online has moved the needle down the road at a much faster pace. You look at something like chess, for example, and like it has exploded in large part because of Twitch, but just people consuming that content online. And so innovation has definitely been present, but I guess what I was thinking about is just that a lot of those ideas in publishing happen from people being in the same room and that hasn't been there. And when you're on Zoom all day, you're kind of just trying to get done what you're trying to yes. get done. And it's very allotted as opposed to like running into someone in the hall and then spark, at least for me, that's like a huge source of inspiration and where a lot of ideas come from. But I, I also think it's important not to try to do too much. Um, we made this commitment on Twitch because we think that Twitch is in it for the long haul and that there's like a whole generation of consumers that are there and that community is just going to get bigger and in five years time might have more impact than NBC all told. But there are other platforms that are come on fast that we kind of stay away from because we don't want to do anything and just be mediocre at it and then invest money and then tear it down. And it's just like, what are you really left with? Like, we, we just want to kind of go big on the things that we believe in. So, right. Yeah. Right. I think it's interesting. I mean, obviously Clubhouse seems obvious as an example of what you're talking about there, right? You don't really know. It's still so new. You don't really know. Are they in it for the long haul? Are they just going to get scooped up? Is there going to be a competitive product or platform that comes along that will ultimately replace Clubhouse? But what is interesting, or at least what's important is social first audio, right? As a newish medium where people are coming together as part of real time in some cases curated, in some cases entirely unstructured conversations. And there's something interesting in that, but I totally understand, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I totally understand why something like Clubhouse might just kind of fall into that category of something that Rolling Stone doesn't need to be on Clubhouse because we don't know whether Clubhouse is here to stay. Is that fair? Well, it's funny that because I was, Clubhouse is a great example. I mean, I think there's a really easy filter to put it through. And it's kind of back to the point I mentioned earlier that Robbie brought up, which is like, is this a medium where we can actually make this platform better and provide something for our audience of value? And when you look at Clubhouse, I don't know that the answer is so clear cut yes in terms of Rolling Stone as a brand. I think it's definitely clear cut yes in terms of people affiliated with our brand or who work for us, our writers. I mean, we, we've had a whole host of, of our editors and writers, myself, others participate in different forums on subject matters where they're expert. And that's fantastic. And it's a great way for those people to connect or promote things that we're working on. So I think it's just about saying, can we provide something of substance and value. And there are going to be certain things that come along where it's going to be a resounding yes, and certain things where it's unclear. And we only have so much time, energy and resource. So we have to be very particular about 
asking that question and answering it appropriately. Totally. Well, listen, we're getting tight on time, but I, I, it would be remiss of me not to ask you about NFTs. When you think about Rolling Stone's archive of photography or some of the most iconic covers of any magazine in history, you guys have got to be looking at or you have to be working on an F NFT at this point. Am I right? You're right. And I think if all goes well, we, we may shake up that market in an exciting way pretty soon. So we are working on that. Yeah. All right. Good. Good stuff. As I mentioned at the top of the show, the business and marketing, it's sort of targeted at CMOs and future C-suite leaders. And, and we aim to try and help them understand the role of marketing in terms of driving business transformation. And what I'd love for you to share is your advice uh, for how to nurture and develop collaborative partnerships with other members of the C-suite. I mean, you're relatively new to the C-suite, but I think through this conversation, it's obvious that you're someone who seeks out opportunities to collaborate both internally within the organization, but also externally in terms of connecting to really smart people who can help to provide you with guidance and what have you. So talk about the importance of collaborative partnerships within the C-suite and, and in particular in terms of how you've leveraged them to drive the type of transformative work we've been talking about today. Honestly, I think it's been one of the most important elements of our whole journey in this sort of turnaround period, or at least since I came on. And one of the most exciting things for me is connecting with someone who's leading another business, whether it's an, a brand or a chief marketing officer, or CEO of a platform or whatever it might be, and having a shared vision where those, our business and their business together can actually achieve something more than we would be able to alone. And we've talked about a couple of things already today. I mean, even Twitch that resulted from a, a conversation between myself and the CEO of that business, but like so much of what we do comes from those type of connections and creative people in those roles. And it's when you get that, because there's only a few people within a business that have the actual means to like move all ships immediately. And that's often what it takes to foster a great idea. So seeking out those kind of individuals who, who have the, the resources and the vision and the spark and uh, like what we do and, and want to dream up something and, and go for it, that is propelled us enormously. And it's something that I seek out all the time and, and is critical for us as a business. One last question for you guys. This past year, I can only imagine how insane it must have been for you as a leader within the C-suite at Rolling Stone. What's the one leadership lesson that you've learned over the course of this last year? Wow. There have been so many. It's been such a fascinating, at times, super difficult year, especially for for people on the staff that have dealt with health issues or problems working from home or whatever. My dad used to say, when I started to think about selling these, the business and putting all the materials together, he would say, the most valuable thing about this business walks in and out of the door every day. And that's so true. And through the course of the pandemic, living by that and actually caring and checking in on everyone's situation, whether it's someone that reports directly to me or all the way at the bottom of the ladder and just being super present as a leader, I think is 
is important even on a business level, but just on a human level. So we've tried to make as much as of an effort and point to just even just ask someone, how are you, especially when you're not like passing them in the hall and you get the opportunity, but like actually taking the time to make a phone call and talk to people that you're not in your direct orbit. So I don't know, there's been so much, but again, just like the basic human level thing of just making sure everyone's doing well and good and, and that you can support them in, in any way has probably been a big lesson. Well said, man. Well, listen, that is all the time we have, Gus. Thank you again for being with us today. Thank you for sharing your insights with our audience. It's uh, hugely appreciated. Thank you so much for having me, Toby. Thanks for listening to The Business of Marketing, brought to you by Adweek and presented in partnership with SAP. The Business of Marketing is produced by Al Manorino. The executive producer is Brian Leddy. Support also provided by Erica Perry and Julian Gamboa. Please take a minute to subscribe and review our show. Your feedback means the world to us. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.